Hello, ghouls, gals, and badass days of the world, and welcome to the Horror Hangover Show. I'm your co-host, Ryan C. Bradley, and today I'm chatting with Ashley Dung about her debut novel, Dehiscent. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. In her biography, Ashley writes that she studied biochemistry with a particular interest in making accessible the often cryptic world of science and medicine. Her short fiction has appeared in some of the best magazines in the world, including Nightmare Magazine, whose editor-in-chief, Wendy N. Wagner, called Dehiscent, inspiring beautiful stuff, auger, and is forthcoming in kaleidotrope. Denison is described as, in a climate collapse near future China, the dregs of civilization huddle in the small communities to scrape together what they can to survive, except for the Zhu family. Yi has lived a sheltered life in her ancestral home and has wanted for nothing, but she's about to learn the terrible secret of just how the Zhu house provides. I love this book. So for the majority of Dehiscent, we're in the perspective of Yi, who's a small child. And I'm curious, what about Yi drew you to her as a main character? And what were the challenges of expressing this intricately built world through her point of view? Yeah, I mean, kids are such a staple in horror, I find. And I think we get really attached almost to the potential of writing about kids who don't really know what's happening in the world right and like there's a a certain kind of really interesting perspective that comes with that that's really useful in horror I find um and so I really wanted to write about uh a girl discovering her family secrets and like really discovering that her family has secrets and sort of the what happens when you have to grapple with the fact that your parents are not necessarily what you think that they are? I've in horror, like there was a lot happening in horror with kids and kind of seeing the world the way that they don't, like the adults don't see it kind of thing. That's a really common way of doing it. But with Yi, I wanted her to have kind of a moment where she realizes she can't really, she doesn't know her parents and what that ends up being like and like not to get super personal but I've kind of you know had a, a, a rougher parent marriage so I've always kind of dealt with that like grasp of what what are my parents who are they and sort of what secrets kind of fall behind that but it does mean that yeah there are some challenges in trying to write about the world through the lens of someone who doesn't know what exactly is happening and it, I found it kind of a fun challenge actually about figuring out what to reveal about the world and when to slip into kind of a third person omniscient point of view to have myself as the author interject with little tidbits about the world that you wouldn't know and but also when it's stronger to lean into her perspective Kids are tough to write. I find that, like, I'm not too familiar with kids who aren't precautious, because I was a very precautious kid. I don't know what, like, so Yi ended up being a very precautious girl, because, like, I don't know what kids are like. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's, like, the standard novel narrator is the precocious kid. Yeah. Cool. Was Yi always the point of view character, or was there drafts with a different narrator? No, she was always a point of view character. Yeah. Very cool. 
So the world, which you kind of hit on a little bit, you've built here is incredible. I love the way you bring in the effects of climate change to life. What kind of research did you do while imagining this world? And did your science background play a role in that? So that's a that's a fun one. I have had very little actually education in terms of like ecosystems or like meteorological sciences or anything like that. I, I kind of went off of the extrapolation of what I do know about ecosystems and how intertwined they all are. And I, I don't think I did a whole lot of like actual external research, but I think it's safe to say I probably started at a higher than, or like, uh, yeah, I guess a higher than average baseline of knowledge. Um, but yeah, even then, like majority of my uh, studies were in about the human body, for instance, right? So I yeah. haven't, um had a whole lot on in terms of that but I, I kept thinking about these wildly changing um uh climate systems that just keep blaring past of each other and it, it just kept getting more and more common in these past five years or something like that like we yeah. really felt the effects of climate change speeding up um these past five years I want to say it's really when it started to hit um at least I started to notice it a lot more where it's like these warm periods in the middle of winter and then followed by like absolute polar vortex we got a 40 degree celsius 40 degree um gap in it like range of temperatures and stuff like that so I was mostly working off of kind of the extrapolation of what I was feeling in, that was happening in the world um and yeah it, it just kind of and not to, to this is not a intentional pun just a chilling feeling of looking at everything that's happening and going I think what a future looks like if we continue like this will look like this you know desolate hot no greenery to balance out the ecosystem right there the, to balance out the temperatures because we rely a lot on it things decay more and then they don't recover next year things and like ecosystems get worse like you don't fix wildfire drought with floods because the flooding will just destroy whatever greenery was there to begin with because everything was too dry so the flooding doesn't sink into the water or sink into the ground it just pulls everything away a little bit why i was hesitant to put a year on what yeah the events are and i've also been hesitant in calling it near future or far future because it's like how close do we want to put our demise yeah. <laughs> into the future to avoid like the 1984 problem where it's 2023 20, now and we're still talking about 1984 as though we're the the future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Like it's so it, it's I'm rereading um, Brave New World for my master's project and it's like he has it like stuff happening like around our time or like 120, 130 years after Ford, right? And it's like yeah after the first Ford model comes out and it's like, oh, we can actually put a place of like what, you know, what, uh, 
Huxley was looking at, which was about 100 years into his future, which is getting rather close to now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like any parts of a brave new world are like coming to fruition? Oh, God. I'm so like, uh, oh, that one's tricky because like in some areas, kind of like, especially with a tech boom, a lot of his yeah. stuff is like a cautioning of removing and that's what a lot of my master's project is hopefully going to be about um nice. the separation of the humanities from education and the yeah. focus on kind of removing the humanities from sciences for instance and science education and barreling forward with what we just consider science education um and like yeah i think honestly some of the most prominent stuff based off of that feels like the AI tech boom. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like when he's cautioning it, like, yeah, culture, who cares about culture anymore? Who cares about the arts? Like, um, this is the, the what if uh, he had uh, Mustafa Mond calling it the, the, um, the true benefits of a really scientific education like he's very blatant about what happens when you remove the humanities from our education and you separate the sciences and the humanities and the great split it's it's super fascinating so given the kind of real basis for the climate change that you're talking about how do you balance that with uh hopefully this is a spoiler but a magical house that feed you's family with the kind of more logical world around it Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What if I, the things that I really wanted to focus on when I was writing this was an impossibility with impossible answers. And I won't get into that any further, but it's like a, the Drew house, it's meant to be this like very clear literary device, essentially, right? It's like, it's there to pose questions that are not at all realistic. And it's there to provide answers that are all not at all realistic. But it has interesting implications. And the implications of that were what I was really interested in in writing the story. Yeah. Okay, I see that. Were you thinking of haunted houses as like a reference for this? Or was it a different inspiration that it comes like a different tradition that it comes from? Oh, God. So a little bit. I will say a little bit. The constant, you know, like the, the, the horror trope, and especially Haunted House one, right? Where you don't go into that room. Yeah. It's either the basement or the, the attic, usually, right? Or sometimes it's like that little, that one cupboard that you don't go into. Yeah. Where yeah. the thing happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that, that sort of idea of the Haunted House. It's a trope of the Haunted House. But, and so, like, that was sort of what I was looking at primarily. That was what I was drawing upon. I really had this idea of this house that just was, like, confused and the attic where you don't go. And eventually it took me to where, how they would piece together. But it it took me a while. I sat on the story for a year before I had any idea where I was going with it. And it's... The, the the Jew house is supposed to be this like monument to 
just kind of the uncanny. And eventually, as I was rewriting, like I, I was going through it again, I was I was drawing off of the haunted house, but specifically Hill House, Shirley Jackson. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just I kept thinking about that opening paragraph of hers, and I was hoping oh, to write yeah. something. Yeah, right. Like the um, just the way that Hill House gets its own character, essentially. Uh, and the way that she writes about it, I don't even want to say personality, but it's this looming presence that is imposing on the story and imposes on the events of the story and imposes itself onto the characters was something that I was really interested in doing. Very cool. So Jehison is built in a world completely different. While most apocalypses are following the Mad Max Road Warrior model, you kind of invented your own. And I feel like I'm fawning over this book, but I'm amazed at how you've managed to create something that flirts with these familiar tropes, but ultimately feels completely new. Is that something you set out to do? And how do you think you achieved that success? This was originally a short story. And so when I was expanding it, there were a lot of elements in there where I realized that I had to touch on the kind of community building that they were working on and just sort of like what the communities looked like. And I had this at the back of my head constantly uh, that most of post-apocalyptic fiction is kind of about every man for himself. And I couldn't picture China looking like that. At least the China that I'm familiar with. I've never been. My parents haven't, like my father has never been. My mother hasn't been back in 40 something years. But just the, it's just the kind of cultural understanding of communities that we're from a fairly rural area. Both sides of my family are fairly, you know, poor Chinese. And so that kind of community and that looking after each other and that resilience is something that I was, I had in the back of my head the entire time because like a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction doesn't touch upon that. In fact, it like actively discourages it. And I don't think that's realistic at all. <laughs> so the Atlantic, uh, oh, sorry. The Atlantic yeah, article, like, Ten years ago, I was working at a desk job, and I just read at my desk all day. But they ran this article about how they ran some actual like simulations of the post-apocalypse, and every simulation had like people would band together. At least for, like the first couple of years, we would band together, and everyone kind of just like and it played out like at Hurricane Katrina as well. Um, like people banded together to survive, which I think is one of the things I love so much about your book is that you kind of capture that where, like you said, everything else just has this horribly cynical view of humanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like, not to be spoiler, but, like, you know, there, there are people here who are also thinking selfishly, um, and not necessarily to the Drew family, because they're dealing with kind of, again, an impossibility. But, I like, I knew, you know, even within this corruption everywhere, so there's always going to be some people who are going to be kind of corrupted, even in dire straits like that but ultimately I wanted to write about something that it was like there is going to be a community there people are trying to work together people are trying to survive they want to look after each other because that's what people are and that's not you know specifically to China that's everywhere people want to look after each other and if there's a disaster and all that it just seems unrealistic that everyone would be going you know 
for themselves. I hope I was successful with it. I was drawing a lot also from kind of the generational trauma that a lot of Chinese people have encountered, but still trying to, you know, form families and communities and stuff like that after what was probably also fairly post-apocalyptic looking China after World War II, like even during World War II and afterward throughout the Cultural Revolution and all that was pretty brutal. And I imagine like similarly those were the sorts of things that i wanted to touch on so you mentioned earlier that you've been sitting on the novella for a year you also mentioned it started as a short story can you kind of walk us through the the timeline of what the process looked like most fast and how other people work oh yeah okay the first paragraph or so of the short story came really easily and then i realized i didn't know what i was doing with it and that was the one that i sat on for about a year well it started to be about a year and I went there's no way I'm leaving this draft for that long so I sat down and worked out things that I will not say because they are spoilers and I was supposed to say I was looking for the overall direction that I wanted to take the story and eventually I got that and then I wrote it and after a few outings to a few uh, markets and they got uh, and rejected like rejections I went through it again fixed up the prose and realized there were a lot of places where I felt like I could expand Hmm. so it went from 5,000 words to 21,000 words I think it was wow yeah (laughs) it was interesting so basically what I did was I went through the story and I made notes to myself in places where I would I like I guess there were, I, I would call them like summary scenes or skim scenes where they like yeah. describe a bunch of things in like two sentences. And I realized that those sentences could actually be full scenes. And then those full scenes turned into, well, now I have implications around it that I feel like I should also contextualize. So I added about 15,000 words to it approximately. And then I went through it again. And then in the final word count, I think it's closer to 26,000. Nice. Yeah. You kind of start with like a first draft and you balloon out from there. Mm-hmm. But I found your writing staggeringly beautiful. I'm going to read a passage that kind of just blew me away. Ye looked down at the duster in her hand and swung it a little, half expecting something to happen then and there, that it might transform into a snake, that the individual feathers would start to twirl and writhe, that they might separate and bear sharp white teeth. So when in the process do you start kind of like really working on the sentence level? Because it sounds like you work on the plot level first. I kind of do both at the same time. Okay. Yeah. And this one was a tricky one for me, actually, because when I wrote it, I was aiming for a lyricality that I'd not be used to. Like, I wasn't used to at the time. I wasn't really sure. I wasn't like, this wasn't typical of it. And then I was halfway through it and realized that I hated all of my prose. No. So I forced myself to finish it because I was really aiming for Tornight Fire's call. And I didn't have yeah. a lot of time. So I sat down, I forced myself to finish it, but I wasn't really happy with it. This affected all my other projects that were happening at the same time. I had hit what I have called the prose crisis. And it was essentially, I was in the middle of growing pains and had no idea how to get over it. Yeah. That very year I sat down and read more books that year than I had like in my entire life it was like 33 34 books or something like that um I like basically went into study mode and then when Tenebris 
except in the novella, I was like, well, I have to revise this and bring it up to speed with my current prose. But I don't generally do that. This was like a special case. So there's a incredibly like marked up page or a few pages of my prose and then a few pages of like published prose or published prose from other authors that I was studying that I had marked up to help me kind of understand where the discrepancy was coming from. And then I managed to get out of my prose crisis and then tackled this again. So it was it was a tricky one, but like usually, usually I don't. Did you have any particular author you focused on during your prose crisis? Anyone that like particularly pushed you through? Yes, uh, Arcady Martin. Yeah, I went through like, I retyped out like scenes, entire scenes from A Memory Called Empire because I absolutely love Arcady Martin's prose. She balances the, the two of like functional and lyrical in a way that I really like. Yeah, Arcady Martin definitely. And I think eventually I started to write a little bit more. The growing pains have stopped. I don't want to say the growing has stopped though. I've become more comfortable in trusting my own instincts about the, the style and the lyricality, but it took a while. <laughs> Very cool. And do you study, I know you're studying your master's and you're studying Brave New World now. What's your master's in? It'll be an English master's. Very cool. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. like that's also influencing your prose? A, mm, mm, it really does depend on like what year I'm writing in, like my more historical fantasy fiction or whatever. I have been drawing a lot more from the period work, the, the writing from that era, but definitely like I try not to let the academic writing get to my fiction. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Which is definitely the right call. <laughs> yeah. So what's next on the horizon for you? A lot of works in progress. I have been in a slow prose writing year so far. I, there is a, I can't reveal too much yet, but keep an eye out for a Dark Academia anthology Kickstarter in October, I believe, where I have a short story in that. Did I see right on your website, you have stories forthcoming in Kaleidotrope and Nightmare? Yes, Nightmare. That one comes out in September. Very cool. If I'm lucky, the company, and by lucky, I mean if I haul my own ass, I have <laughs> accompanying solo RPG version of that story that Very I would cool. like to, yeah, that I would like to finish in time to release at the same time as that story. Might not. September is approaching rapidly, but... <laughs> definitely something I'm aiming to finish anyway because it's hopefully a lot of fun yeah and other than that my long longer dark fantasy work that I'm quite proud of but have yet to see the light of day <laughs> when does the book come out August 1st this year yeah it's coming rapidly and I am terrified and excited <laughs> yes are there any questions that you wish I would have asked something something body horror gore. I don't know. That's where my brain is at the moment. I was uh, wanted to be a medical illustrator for a while, so I have a special love of, like, the the goriness. And when I wrote this initially, I hadn't delved too far into that. I was like, no, I'm more of a quiet horror person. And then in a year, I went from that to, like, lots of gore. <laughs> it just kind of devolved, I suppose, to that yeah. kind of horror writer. Do you feel like the the doing, you said medical illustrations, do you feel like doing that kind of drawing lends like a realism to the body horror you do? A little bit. Like I kind of, I have this like 
love affair of anatomy and especially it's like talking about you know that era of history where science and the humanities were still fairly close I really loved that era where and, and love is such a strained word in this context the kind of ritualization of early medical science and the relig like religiosity that we gave to the human body and medicine and that sort of thing at the time thank you so much for coming on everyone who's listening please order a copy of ash's book it's great you will not be disappointed thanks everybody for listening thank you for having me